Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. Today, you sent me an article from Slate.com, and they were running sort of an advice column. Basically, over the last couple of months, as most American schools across the country are going virtual, parents have had an interesting window into what's going on in school. They've had a chance to watch for hours as their kids are on these kind of Zoom web meetings and stuff like that for school. This advice column was just parents asking questions about should they be concerned about certain things that teachers were doing in the class. I wanted to read just sort of three comments or questions that these parents asked because I think they all kind of fit together and then I just wanted to get your opinion. So here's the best paragraph I read. Since we are on Zoom for at least five hours a day, I am able to listen to the class. The teacher treats the class like they are middle school age kids. She is very strict in correcting what I see as normal six-year-old behavior. Here was the second one. We're three weeks into school and my daughter who loves school and does not typically complain is miserable and bored in her English language arts learning block. The teacher clearly hasn't divided kids up into groups yet and the kids are all going through the same shared lessons together that definitely seem a grade level or two below what my daughter is used to. Here's number three. My daughter is getting in trouble. He gets very bored and frustrated and then is scolded by the teacher for not watching the screen. He is listening, but he will color or read a book when he gets bored. I don't think he should be called out for it because he's not disrupting anyone else by doing it, but he's insistent. Do I make him stare at the screen? So Don, those are kind of three things that people are asking, wondering about, frustrated about how their kid is either being treated in class or what they're being asked to do. What do you think? What do you, what do you think about this whole virtual process of school online right now? I just don't think it's that different from in-person learning. And I wonder if parents really understand what's happening in schools or what school is like, or do they remember accurately what school was like? I agree with you. The one thing I was just thinking about is how school has always kind of been a black box. We send our kids away, they go away for eight hours, and then they come back. And they usually come back fine, not maybe very excited, but I mean the classic thing, right? Hey, what happened in school today? And the kid just kind of says stuff or nothing. But clearly stuff happened at school. It's just that the kids maybe don't remember it much or it really wasn't that exciting. And for the first time ever, though, parents are kind of getting a, a view into school. But I'd also say I don't really know if they're getting a view into the school that was before COVID-19 forced us all online. Yeah, I think that if we were to follow our kids to school, even on a normal school day before COVID, we would be a little bit surprised. But I don't think we remember accurately what our schooling experience was like. I mean, when we think back, we maybe remember big events or one good teacher, or one really bad teacher, but I don't think we remember accurately the monotony that it is. And there's just a whole lot of, listen to this, here we're doing this, you're not much interested in this, and that's what we're doing. And I'm not sure parents really realize that until now with their more seasoned ears and wise experience, they're listening to what's happening day to day and realizing, boy, my kid's not really that interested in this most people probably agree with it. And they just say, look, this is part of the process, right? Life is not always a bowl of cherries. And you go through the process of school, you jump through the hoops that school asks you, because we know that in the long run, people who finish through public education, who get a high school diploma are much more successful than people who just get a GED, which is a, an equivalent of a high school diploma. But we know that it's part of the process of sitting and, and also a lot of social interaction. And, and it was interesting because in the ones where the parents were concerned about 
how the teacher is very strict. And I just always think, yes, in school, teachers use firm language to correct students and to let them know when maybe their behavior is being disrespectful. And usually the other part that maybe parents aren't seeing is that teachers try to get back to that student and give them positive affirmation when they're acting in a certain way. Sometimes though, I could see where parents might feel like language is, is firm or it's kind of jarring. I can't believe a, a child is being spoken to like that. But the other part that they don't see is how usually one or two interactions like that is what gets kids on track and what gets them going. I'm sure you and I have had lots of honest conversations with students. And at first they might be a little uncomfortable, but that's also part of the process of coming to school and, and sort of learning socially how to behave in different situations. Well, I think the habits the teachers have that help them in person have translated uh, online in not necessarily the best way because being firm, being direct, the parent teacher wasn't demeaning the student or making fun of them. They were just saying clearly what you need to do. And that's what teachers do in the classroom to get children focused and direct them. And online, it just doesn't translate that well when the parents are sitting right there. But they do need to do what they're supposed to do, right? I, I think so. But at the same time, I think school is always sat sort of in the middle of parent and teacher and community and national expectations for what should we be doing at school? And therefore, I guess it seems kind of normal that all of a sudden as teachers are being beamed live into everybody's houses, that people are starting to form judgments and form value statements about is this what school is or is this how people behave? And my only kind of defense of teachers a little bit is I don't think the virtual world translates well to what an in-class kind of experience is like. And my whole thing is, is I think about when I try to run a virtual meeting, I'm trying to manage kind of the quote unquote Zoom room, if you will. I'm trying to let kids in, let kids out. I've got students whose internet goes down and they're sending me private messages telling me that they're going to be late. You're trying to communicate with them. You're also actually trying to communicate the lesson for the day. It's really hard when a lot of kids uh, turn their, their cameras off so that you really can't even get a facial sort of read on our kids understanding this. Are they even at their computers listening to what you're saying? You might ask a question and then no students respond or even raise the little emoji hand that they're supposed to do to kind of respond to you. So you're sometimes kind of talking to yourself and then it's really hard to connect with students. And this is the part I'm finding really hard is in the classroom, I noticed that I'm able to comment to students, just things, ask them how their day is, just as they're entering my class. And meanwhile, other kids are having their own sidebar conversations and we're all socially relating to each other, connecting with each other. And you do that day after day and you really build a class culture. Now, the best thing I can do is, hey, Johnny, how are you today? And then they unmute, I'm good, Mr. Veal. Thank you. Hey, Sally, how are you today? I'm good, Mr. Veal. And then you do that 30 times and you could see where a lot of kids are already probably like, why are we doing this? This is so boring. This isn't about me. It's the best you've got. It's really hard to personally connect with students, which I think really hurts the process. I think you hit on the right point there, which is the engagement point. And I've heard my sons go through, they're both in middle school, go through with their teachers like, and how are you? How are you, Colin? How are you, Joe? And they're, okay, okay. And it's hard to have that engagement. Like if a student walked into class and you notice they're wearing a Mackinac Island t-shirt on, you might say to them like, ooh, great fudge. What's your favorite fudge? Or 
the horses gross or exciting and just kind of get a little discussion with them going. But that informal stuff is where you bond with them and having to try to bond with them other than that is really, really challenging. In addition, kids are interested in their teachers and sometimes teachers tell stories about themselves or their families. And I think at home that comes off as, wow, that's oversharing it a little weird. But in the classroom, that's what a lot, what kids are interested in. Like, oh, really? You like apple picking or you like going to NASCAR events or whatever it is that you do that's interesting kind of bonds you with kids. But I'm sure that doesn't translate well over the internet. That's a really good point. I think teachers are very aware that they are on display in people's homes. And therefore, I think in some ways they are delivering their lessons in a more generic way that wouldn't be misinterpreted in some ways. And you're right. Like when you start to talk about your personal lives and how they connect sometimes with the curriculum, I think it does engage students. But I think a lot of people are, are kind of trying to stay right to the middle. And I think that definitely explains why sometimes we've got kids that are bored, they're frustrated, right? It's a long day sitting in front of a screen. I mean, you and I at least are talking at the screen. If you're a student who's got to sit there and this is only your second of, of three hours that you're sitting on the, on the screen all day, it can become a very passive experience. It becomes easier just to kind of sit there and probably zone out and, and start to look for other distractions in your house. I have no doubt that I've probably got some students that might be watching Netflix on another screen or maybe are playing phone games below the, the camera just because probably I'm maybe not that interesting all the time. And it's really hard to force yourself to be actively engaged like that. And I can see where it becomes easier just to not raise your hand, even though you know the answer to the question that's being asked, because that's just more effort. And it's also, you know, kind of maybe not what everybody else is doing. It's like, why do I want to be the only one who's raising their hand? And then as a teacher, you don't want to call out a lot of students. Maybe you don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. And it just seems like, this is all kind of boiling down to an equilibrium, but it's an equilibrium that I don't know if it really represents what the in-class face-to-face experience is. I am certainly more engaging and more interesting in person. If not so much that I use material or words that I wouldn't use online, but more because I can customize it to the individual kid. And whether they're a football player or a dancer or they're interested in car repair, I can make jokes and things that come ahead. But most of the material that my students are getting from direct instruction are is pre-recorded videos where it's very generic. It's not aimed at the individual class, the individual person. And that's the flip model we're currently embracing in my school. It's okay, but I'm not that funny. I'm not that interesting. I could be a lot funnier and interesting in person, but that's just not the model we're using. And then the flip side of that is I'm spending almost all my teaching time in small groups where I can engage with kids. And I can talk to them and they will have a two-way conversation. Thankfully, in the small groups, they're talking more than I'm talking and we're working together on stuff. But it just isn't the same as the classroom where you can have them go back and forth. I have one class and one student in particular that brings joy to my life because he's willing to talk. He wants to talk about what's going on in the world and he's interested in having a discussion. Unfortunately, I can only let it go for about three or four minutes because Everybody else is like, why are we talking about subs? Like, well, we're bonding. We're talking about what is sub is best. Is it Jimmy John's? Is it firehouse subs? What is it? And then it just gets away from us. Whereas in the class, I can involve other people and start to build some community. And that's a really good point about relationship building, right? And we know that 
it's relationships with students that are that are strong and, and you find those common interests. And that tends to get a lot of students to want to perform better because they want to make you happy. And it's just really difficult to be making that. And so I guess I'm, I'm just sort of curious, like when you hear these sorts of complaints being being brought up to Slate, and I'm sure there's lots of other sorts of complaints, I feel like they're valid. I feel like they should be thought about. But I guess I would also just come back to those parents and just say, you know, it's such a different world that you're looking at. And it's one that just, I don't think is an exact translation of what you see. Uh, where do you think about it? Well, one, I guess it could fit into a couple categories. I think there's one series of complaints that are, have to do with the parents don't really understand what school's like. And they don't understand what teachers are saying day to day. In that article, there's a parent complaining that the teacher talked about how many hours they spent grading over the weekend. How surprised were you to hear that a teacher is talking about how much they're grading? I wasn't surprised. I, I've definitely heard other of my colleagues talk about that kind of stuff. I've always felt like that's one where, yeah, the, I think the parent does have a legitimate complaint. I, I think that teachers should try to keep that kind of stuff away from students. Yeah, I, I'm with you. It's not something they should say, but I'm not surprised because I know teachers talk all the time about how much they're grading at home. And the kids will even say like, oh, my English teacher's talking about how much grading they have to do. Well, and they do have to do a lot of grading and maybe it's not entirely appropriate that's shared, but I wasn't surprised at all that teachers said it because it's just something that gets said. And then there's the other category of just things that aren't translating well to online and just shows a lack of connection. And that's like you said before, the most important thing is the connection with the student and the teacher. And if the teacher's engaged with the student, the student will perform well. And we're trying to reach out and communicate and engage, but I think we get a little lost in a battle of, are, can you stop looking at your phone and look at me? I can, can't see your phone on the, on the computer, but I know you're on it because you're not listening when I ask you a question and you don't know what we're talking about. Or the battle to, can you turn on your camera? Can you engage with us? There's so many more barriers to engagement, especially when you don't have the physical presence in front of you. I'm big, I'm loud, I jump, I do crazy things to get kids' attention. I can't do that online. I like what you say there about the power dynamic between student and teacher has become very flat and it's almost become very equal. The student can choose to keep their camera off. And as a teacher, you're probably gonna say, okay, you know what, I'm not gonna fight that battle. But at the same time, the student uh, also is allowed to have other distractions if they don't have other parents in the room that are kind of controlling that. And so once again, we really can't fight that. It makes me kind of think about how like three, five years ago when cell phones were becoming a real problem in schools and schools were trying to figure out how are we going to solve this issue because students are clearly looking for a distraction in the classroom. And a lot of schools came up with policies where kind of zero tolerance, right? If your cell phone's out, you're just gonna get a, a, a consequence for it. In my school, it's your cell phone should just be in the locker unless you're told differently. And for the most part, it seems like teachers, students, and schools kind of found a policy that started to work. It sounds like at your school, teachers sort of kind of said, okay, kids, you've got a few minutes to kind of wrap up your phone world and then it needs to be off and then the consequences will apply. And I think sort of meeting kids halfway in that I realize you need this, I realize your social life matters and to a point, we'll let you engage with it, but then it needs to be off. And it sounds like at least we found a way to put the distractions away, whereas we've now brought the distractions back and it's very difficult to enforce, especially when you as a teacher are trying to run a meeting, right? Trying to actually work through and, and dictate your curriculum and stuff like that. That's, that's really difficult. 
Well, I think the like the phone example is a good one. And what we created at my school was a game and there were rules to the game. The rules were, I will tell you to put your phone away after I finish attendance and then you get one warning. And after the warning, if I see you on your phone again, you're going to get a cell phone violation. And last year I gave out like six or eight. And I, as though each time I did, I told the kids like, look, this is just the way the rules are. It's not personal. I'm not upset at you, but you didn't, you violated the rules. But then the game went, I tell you to put your phone away. How much can you try to use your phone before I give you the warning? And there were kids that got a warning every single day. And their goal was to get the warning as late in the class as possible so that they could use their phone as much during class. And at least we had a rapport and it was a game and we went through this and everybody knew how it worked. And it worked for the most part and most kids kept their phones away and that was fine. I would argue this is a different game because A, we can't see the phones, B, we can't control the kids nearly as well, and C, the kids want distraction more than anything else. For the most part, they're sitting in their class, in their rooms at their house, laying on their bed oftentimes. They're looking around. There's nothing else to look at. There's no other students to look at. You're not looking at what people are wearing or how what people are doing. You can't stare out the window because it's the same thing that's been there forever. You really want your phone to look at. It's not as interesting as what it was in the classroom. So we're really battling their attention, which they desperately want to not give us because it's not as interesting. That's a really good point. I, I mean, we are definitely a multi-screen society at this point. I mean, I'm definitely guilty of having television on and then being on my phone. This kind of seems almost like a normal behavior, right? Hey, I'm in class, my screen's on, uh, I'm, I'm listening, but I'm also doing two or three other things. And as we know, it's really hard to concentrate on multiple things happening at one point. And I agree with you. It's probably not as interesting to the students and therefore you kind of see where it all is. What I'm noticing though is students are missing key pieces of information like when, a, when an assignment is due or you need to go work on this now. Or sometimes what you'll notice is as you say goodbye to all of the students, you have like two or three screens that are still left at the end of the meeting and you're like, oh wow, Billy, you got a question? Billy? No, Billy? they ghosted you, they're gone. A, and then all of a sudden the screen goes away or, all right, Billy, well, maybe you're having some internet trouble. So if you got a question, please email me. I want to help. And then you end the meeting and Billy's still there. Yeah, there's definitely some ways of gaming the systems. And uh, we're, uh, I'm trying to figure out ways around that to so kids that are really just finding a way to tune in, to theoretically be there, but not actually participate and not learn the concepts, which in some kind, like I'm doing supply and demand right now. And if you don't get it now, you're in deep trouble. But I do want to make another point, And that is the kids, we are no better than the kids. We are expected, we are on multiple screens all the time. And I say we as teachers. And as a parent, I really try hard to put my phone away. In fact, when I, we watch TV as a family, I leave it upstairs because I, the more tired I get, the more I look to my phone just to keep me awake and as a distraction so I'm not falling asleep. That blue light helps me stay awake just so I can make it till 10. But it's hard. And if you and I go to a staff meeting, if you and I go to a conference, all the teachers are doing the exact same thing the kids are. They're on their phone. And the presenters seem to have no problem with it. And something I can't understand. If I was presenting and I looked out and everybody was on their phone, it would drive me crazy. It's a good point. We are, we are no better 
when it comes to being engaged, right? And usually when are we engaged at a PD? It's because we find the lesson, the topic, the, the subject worth engaging with, right? Being interested in it. And as you said, because we're going remote, hey, these students didn't choose to be remote. They wanted to come to school. It's just that obviously we have a, a global pandemic going on right now. It's not safe. You we're, make a good point of we are engaged when we are interested in the subject matter. But how often are you and I at some sort of a staff development where we chose the subject? Not often. Very and rarely. And when it is happened, we're really engaged. Now think of our kids. They didn't choose these subjects for the most part, or if they chose it, it was part of a limited selection. My son got his sixth favorite elective in his middle school, so he didn't get to choose it. So they're just sitting there taking it. But if it's not an in-person thing, it's just harder to be engaged. I mean, I give the kids credit. For the most part, they're good kids. They're getting the work done. It's just a struggle for them to focus. Totally especially at a young age. I definitely get confused or, or forget this sometimes is like, I have 12 year olds, like to ask them to sit on a screen all day long and then to make sure they're, they're managing all of their work and stuff like that. I think that is a really big responsibility when it is so dramatically different than what happens on the in-class experience. And as you said, a lot of our tools, a lot of our tricks in the trade of getting kids interested in subjects they didn't choose, of sitting through class is using humor connecting with them about their outside interests, right? And that usually is enough to kind of mix in with the experience. And then also to have a variety of tasks, go meet in this small group. Today, I want you guys to pull out these Legos and model something here. And so every day is a little different. You're trying to like the teacher and all of that stuff is just really difficult to translate to the online world, as you're saying. I totally agree with that. In addition, there are some things, like we said, that just aren't appropriate and will be mistaken out of context. I was curious, like in your opinion, what do you think is the most challenging part of virtual teaching? Obviously, we've talked a lot about connecting with kids. The thing that I've found to be the hardest is the data management of this whole experience and that everything from having to take attendance online to setting up online meetings. These are clicks. These are things you've got to think about trying to digitize all of my materials from things I want kids to read to, you know, sheets that I want them to complete to then just grading. What I've noticed is I'll grade students' assignments, and then they go back to the kids electronically, and then the kids will instantly get a notification. They will redo the assignment, and then they'll send it back to me. All of this stuff is just always happening, and I'm always just under this mountain of digital data that I'm trying to manage. And I'm not saying that my job is impossible or anything like that. It's very doable, but it's a new challenge. Whereas I used to be able to show up in my class, I could use a whiteboard, I could hand out pieces of paper, and things just moved slower or at a pace that felt more comfortable, I think. Whereas now I just feel like I'm constantly having to manage things. Kids that turn in assignments late, I've got to now go and reopen up an assignment and add in those points. Um, they want to know information. You got to go look at stuff. It's just a really different challenge, something that I did not expect to be experiencing. I think the unstructured part that you're mentioning is the most challenging part for me in that I walk in Monday morning and it's just overwhelming because I'm staying a week ahead with creating content. So I'm not worried about the content because it's already created last week for this coming week, but I'm worried about all the grading I have to do, messages from students, making up work. And then as, as soon as I grade everything, then I get an avalanche of work from kids that didn't do it, but now that's in the grades, their parents are on their case and they want to turn it in late. And then, like you said, I have kids doing work from week one. We're on week six. I now have about 30 
Microsoft Forms assignments and quizzes that are all out there and I have to go back and find their work, which is not tremendously hard, but if there's 10 kids turning in 10 different late assignments, I have to find them and then enter them in the grade. And it comes scattershot. With the way we're using it with Microsoft Teams, there's a chat function and students chat with us like they text with their friends. Hey, what's up with this assignment? I just did this, or where do I find this? And I can answer quickly, but I'm not a smart man. I'm a one-track thinker. And when I'm trying to create content and I just, somebody says, hey, what's this? Where is it? Then I answer them, but then it takes me a while to get back on track. If I'm in a structured setting in a classroom, I have my prep time my, to really lock in and think about what I'm doing and fully engage. And without the distractions, it just makes every moment multitasking. And that's just hard for me as a man with a paper thin corpus callosum that can't multitask. I like your word scattershot. And that's the other part is the, the communication then starts coming in from both parents and students. And they're always legitimate questions. But each time you have to stop your train of thought to go answer it, or you already graded a, a batch of, of assignment number four. And now, as you said, you're on now assignment number seven, but now you got to go back and, and it just, it adds to just the complexity of the day. And it's definitely a full-time work. And again, it's not impossible. It just makes it challenging. And then the thing that I just always keep going back to is like, I feel like I'm managing data and I'm managing it with kids that I don't really know that well. And I would know them by now if we were face-to-face. I would know who these kids are. I would know their background. I would know their individual needs. But it's just such a challenge to get to know these kids on top of all the other things. And it just makes distance just a different experience. And I guess that's just kind of why I go back to those complaints in the Slate article is I think they're legitimate. I think sometimes you're always going to have teachers that maybe do need to soften their language or, or rethink kind of what they've said to kids. And, and therefore, I don't want to discount what the parents have said. But I'd also just say that I think we as teachers are still trying to take so much of our classroom behaviors in teaching and we're trying to translate it online. And it works some days and other days, it just kind of doesn't work as well as we might have thought it would. Well, we have a foot in each world. You and I both teach to- online for uh, in total asynchronous fashion where we're never online with the kids at the same time. And we're both used to teaching in person face to face. And we have this weird area where we are right now. Where we have a foot in both worlds and we're trying to figure out how much of one versus how much of the other. I'm leaning more into asynchronous because I'm pre-recording my lectures and things and putting them out there and then asking the kids to engage with me in smaller groups for shorter durations. It's still trying to do both things. And it's not all of one, it's not all of the other. And also the rules aren't clear, nor are the expectations. And I think for the kids, they're not sure how they're supposed to interact in any situation. And I asked my students how it's how it's going for them. And they said, I like your model because... The things are pre-recorded. I can find everything I need. And you're not talking at me for two hours. And I thought, I don't even know what I'd say for two hours to a cave of faceless people that don't have their cameras on. In small groups with cameras on, I can do things that make sense. But the kids are figuring this out. And to their credit, most of them are figuring it out. I just don't know how it's going to change in the next month when we go to some sort of hybrid where we're in class a little bit and out of class another a bit. Like the rules are always changing. It's hard for anybody to get used to something. And that's a really good point, how the rules and the expectations change and also the learning curve. Because the thing I've noticed is that after about week one or week two, 
when I started putting zeros in the grade books for kids that weren't turning things in or were really giving a very low effort, I noticed a real increase in the amount of stuff that was being submitted and that the effort increased. And I think one, the kids were coming from last spring where they knew the grades didn't matter and that nothing could count. And I think they had to kind of be woken up for that. I think some of the, their parents like started looking at the grade book and started getting on the kids. And I do think it's all a huge learning curve. And it would be one of those things where if we had to continue all year online, I kind of wonder what sort of innovations would happen and what sort of level we could get things to. And I think that that's a really good point. We're all in this together, all trying to figure it out. And I think as long as the effort is there, you know, we can make it through this thing and we can find what works and what doesn't work. But I think you make a really good point about asynchronous. And that's just the idea that people learn when they want to learn and when it works for their schedule. Whereas when you're having these meetings, they're synchronous. The one thing I notice is that, you know, after three o'clock or so, I kind of turn off my Microsoft Teams for the day and I'm not really taking a whole lot of communication from students. But I notice that a lot of my communications come from my students at 8 p.m., at 9 p.m., at 10 p.m., when they seem like they're more wired and ready to start working on schoolwork and maybe they just weren't ready from eight to three, which I just sort of think is interesting. And it just goes to show, well, maybe the kids are interested in doing the work or are ready to do the work. They just don't want to do it from eight to three. Yeah. And I think that we could get really good at this. There is a learning curve. We are getting better. And I think the kids are getting better and understanding how it works. And there is an opportunity that we could take as a society to say, all right, let's make this work. Let's find out how we can do this best. Clearly, it's better for some kids than it is for other kids. But I think kids are very, very adaptable and they'd figure it out. And if we keep working on it, then we could come up with a system that would really, really work well. And it's a bit of an opportunity missed because it seems like we're going to go back to some sort of in-person, not in-person thing. We're just starting to get good at this. In a way, I wonder how it's going in Ann Arbor, where the union has decided it's a non-starter. They're not going in no matter what. So Ann Arbor's not going to have in-person class. They're not going to have hybrid class. They're just sticking online for the foreseeable future. In a way, I think that's really good because they can work on getting really, really good at this. And that the district can get on board. What sort of tools can we provide? What skills are important? What can the kids get to do their work better? What do these work? Because we're not really doing data. You know, I was thinking about a chapter in Atul Gawanda's book, Better, which is a fantastic book. And he does a big chapter on battlefield surgery. And what they did was they realized all these doctors in Iraq, when Iraq was early and the U.S. was taking lots of casualties, the soldiers would get treated within 20 minutes at a battlefield hospital. And then they get treated in the back lines. And then they get, sometimes they'd be in Germany within 24 hours after being treated in three or four different locations. And they kept experimenting with different stuff. And they kept the data on what worked and what didn't work. And turns out what worked was they'd go to the battlefield hospital and they'd basically stop the bleeding, pack them in gauze, saran wrap them right on the side of the saran wrap what was wrong with them. And 12 hours later, they're in Germany getting major surgery and surviving, which is incredible. But the battlefield surgeons were keeping all the records and the data to make sure they figured out what worked and what didn't. And they did figure out what worked. And it's an incredible story of improvement. That said, what data are we keeping? Are we doing anything to really record what's working and what not, what's not working? Other than like tales or like, oh, this kid did this or this kid didn't do this. Are we recording anything? That's a good question. That's a very good question about promoting 
possibly the things that are working for teachers. And I, I do wonder if maybe is it even too early to start recording what's working? I mean, I get like in terms of there's so much experimentation going on. Everybody's trying to figure out what seems to engage kids the best. I do think at some point you do want to make sure that you've collected surveys from all of your stakeholders and, and also trying to figure out, you know, what did work? Also the data, how did, how did tests go up? I mean, I guess we'll have to find out towards the end of your first quarter here in terms of did your test come in about where your test came in from last year from face-to-face kids? Did they come in lower? Did they come in better? And then you start to figure out, okay, what did we do? What worked? The one thing about coming back to school though, that I think will be healthy is I do think some of these kids need to come back just to be able to see faces in a room. I think also just the first thing I thought about when students come back to my classroom is all the distractions are gonna be gone. And it's gonna be like, here's Mr. Abiel, and here we go, children. And I think some of them are gonna probably like having less distractions to their, with their lives, but I think also some are probably gonna struggle. Think about it, it's been since March that these kids have been able to just kind of change the screen, right? Hit a new link or go do something that they want to do. And now all of a sudden they're going to be a captive audience in my class in a very restricted environment. And in some ways, I think that will be good. In other ways, I think as you've just been saying, it's going to be a whole nother learning process about how does school and how does learning go. But that's kind of been the school year, right? Is it's just been about being flexible and, and working through things. And my point is, I don't think we're learning as much as we are. We're just getting through it and we're not recording. I mean, I guess if we were journaling or if we were doing something to really document what's working and what's not working, or at least comparing who's, what kids are doing well, what methods are doing well. But regardless, yeah, you say coming back, that will be better for some students. Yes, but they've also, many of them have been on vampire schedules for going on nine months now. They're going to come back to an environment that is not the same in that, yes, there'll be less distractions, but they're going to be sitting in rows far apart. They can't go on sensory breaks. They can't just go to the bathroom because you can't have unscripted students around interacting with whomever. We have to keep them together. In staggered breaks, is it going to be 15 minutes between classes so teachers can clean the rooms? If so, what are they doing for 15 minutes? Staying six feet apart somewhere? Like it's, and there's going to be a third as many kids as normal. It's going to be very different. And I think it's going to be a little bit of a struggle. What I'm hearing from my wife, who is a teacher in Rochester and elementary students returned is the elementary kids are excited and they're really happy to be back. I hope that's the way it is for the high school and middle school kids as well. But I think it's going to be very, very different and it's going to feel different. Yes. And I'll be very curious of the students that come back January when the semesters and students might have an opportunity to opt back to go virtual. And I'll be curious how many students say, you know, I think I'd rather go virtual than than do the kind of processes that schools are asking students to do. So it'll be interesting to see who kind of votes with their feet. It will be interesting long-term how much this online world just changes public education. I think that most public school systems now are gonna be asked to be providing some sort of a virtual option for people that just decided, I liked this, or my family had a lot more flexibility in how they wanted to run their schedule and lives. We demand this from our public school. And I think a lot of public schools are paying attention to that. And then when you talk about elementary, my, my kids went back this week. What I was sort of amazed at is they came home and they never once complained about having to wear their mask all day long. They definitely said they had to like sit down in their desk most of the day. They said that was a little bit hard. 
but they seemed really excited just to be back. Now that's elementary. That is a different world than middle school and high school. But I think what was amazing was they came back after day two and I said, hey, how was your day? And they both just said, fine. What did you do? Stuff. And it was as if we had never left the class. <laughs> and it was like as if the black box was back and it was really hard to figure out exactly what was going on. And it kind of brings me though, to another article that we read a couple of weeks ago. And it was about an educational researcher named E.D. Hirsch. His whole idea is that American schools have gone wrong in terms of what it is they're doing inside the quote unquote black box. And here's the best paragraph I read from him. E.D. Hirsch says, the current fashion is for teachers to be a guide on the side instead of a sage on the stage, he says, quoting the latest pedagogical slogan, which means that teachers aren't supposed to lecture students, but to facilitate learning by nudging students to follow their own curiosity. Everything Mr. Hirsch knows about how children learns tells him that's the wrong approach. If you want equity in education, as well as excellence, you have to have whole class instruction in which a teacher directly communicates information using a prescribed sequential curriculum. Mr. Hirsch, 92, is best known for his 1987 book, Cultural Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know. It is an argument for teaching specifics, followed by a lengthy list of them thousands of historical figures, events, concepts, and literary works with which, in Mr. Hirsch's view, educated Americans should be familiar. Heavily weighted towards Western history and civilization, the list provokes charges of elitism. Yet Mr. Hirsch is singly focused on helping disadvantaged kids. They are not exposed to this information at home, he says, so they'll starve intellectually unless the schools provide it. So, Don, what do you think? Do you think Mr. Hirsch is making an interesting case? We've all now, again, gotten a chance to see a little bit about what school is like. And his point is, we need to get back to teachers lecturing more and lecturing about a lot more stuff than maybe what's going on in schools. I really enjoyed this article. I talked about it with a lot of people who I will mention at a point, but uh, it is striking. Um, I think... I love elitism, but I don't like Eurocentrism. So it's kind of hard to balance those two out. Let's, let's try to include other cultures, but at the same time, only look at the important things and the uh, really big thinkers. Um, I really like this idea. I feel like students thrive when they hear a good lecture or they're involved in a good lecture, which doesn't have to be entirely one-sided, can be Q&A, can be engaging, can be, a, can be more than that. I think kids also really, really like it. My first question is, how many good lecturers do we have out there? Because I don't think everybody's good at it. That's a good point. I think it's uh, probably it's a lost art. I, I go back to a, a book that I read called Amusing Ourselves to Death, and it was about sort of social discourse in America. And the author brings up the Lincoln-Douglas debates, right? And this is back in the, in the late 1850s and Lincoln and Douglas, like Douglas would get up and talk for like two, three, four hours. And there'd be thousands of people there watching, listening, processing it all, right? And then it was Lincoln's turn. And he would be like, hey, everybody, um, that was a good three or four hours. Like I'm gonna need probably three or four hours to refute everything that Mr. Douglas has said. So why don't you go home, have dinner and then come back and we'll do a nightcap and you guys can listen to me. And shockingly, like everybody went home, but then everybody came back to listen more, right? 
whereas nowadays it's like, oh, lectures are boring. Nobody can listen to it. People don't process audio very well. And therefore you could say it really is a lost art. Yeah, but I mean, TED Talks are good. People like TED Talks. If you can keep it concentrated, keep it interesting, keep it funny, you can have some real, real good discourse. And students like it. Students really want to know the answers. Like, just tell me the answers. Like, okay, no, get in these groups, look at this data, and you tell me what you figured out. And the kid, the high school kids will say, no, just tell me what's on the test. Just tell me what I need to know. I don't want to sit here and tear apart data with these idiots. I'm a moron. Tell me what I need to know. And I think that it can really be a good job, and the kids really like it. I found the Mr. Hirsch article really interesting. I found it interesting because it goes to refute pretty much everything that teachers are being taught today and sort of what has become standard practice in schools. And in Mr. Hirsch's defense, while people want to say, look, there's a lot of elitism and Eurocentrism, you're pointing out, he comes back in the article and says, look, I don't really care what it is that we're teaching. If you want to you know, bring in more points of views and, and talk more about minority groups of people, fine. His point is make it part of the common language that students in our society are learning about. His biggest thing is that the collective tissue of the nation should have all these topics that everybody is very aware about and able to have a dialogue about or an understanding about. And so his thing is, I'm not here to tell you this is what we have to learn. But let's just make sure that we're all learning the same thing, which I kind of found very interesting. I just think it's such a refute from how you and I have been taught to teach and where teaching is going. I had a long discussion with this with the esteemed Thomas Rubito, whom you are familiar with as well, who said that one, Sage on the side was like 10, 15 years ago. And two, why does it have to be all one or all the other? Very rarely would you have a teacher anywhere that would lecture every day for an hour or 90 minutes a day. That's just way too much. There are days in which when I taught APUS history, where I lectured most of the days, and then I wouldn't lecture the next day or the day after that because we're doing some sort of interesting activity. But I mean, you can, it doesn't have to be all one or the other. I don't think it's a successful strategy to sit there and lecture all day, every day. You'll drive the kids insane. Or some kids you drive insane, some would thrive and love it. I could go forever lecture, hearing a lecture that's really, really good, but you're not going to engage everybody that way. And it doesn't have to be all one thing. It's interesting because in the book, Hirsch, or I'm sorry, in the article, Hirsch says, look, you know, when American education started going downhill, we started losing out in terms of testing data versus the rest of the world it was in the 1940s when they started unbolting the desks to the floor and, you know, letting, letting kids group up to work on things. And he, he kind of points as that the turning point of when everything starts going wrong. And I love that. And ironically, us going back to school here in the age of COVID means we're kind of rebolting desks to the floor. And it, it kind of, in a way, sets us back up to maybe go in a Mr. Hirsch direction, which I just kind of think is interesting. The kind of pushback I would give to this sort of argument, though, is we know that people have horrific memories. We know that people cram for tests and then they immediately forget things when they don't need anymore. We know from the Case Against Education book that we read that transferability skills, where people take a fact and then try to use it and apply it somewhere else, that we're, we're terrible at that. So therefore, while definitely maybe teaching all the same stuff has a lot of merit, I don't know, are we just going to spend a ton of time working through facts that we all just kind of know that we're all just going to forget? 
I guess so. But I think learning of those facts, then subsequently forgetting it, is a skill that we take away and that we put some context to things. So even if you learn 55 things about chemistry, as you and I did at one point, we don't remember that much. But I remember being interested in phase changes and how it works and that 22.4 liters equals 6.02 times the tens of the 23rd. I mean, it's the learning the first place, right? It's not just the fact that you forget it. It's that you learned it. Yeah, no, that's true. And I was doing a little bit of research last night and, and I saw an article just more about the Hirsch belief. And they, they took a, a paragraph from like a history textbook that was talking about cotton production. And they just pointed out all of these words in there that assumed that kids knew what cotton was, that they knew how cotton is grown, that they knew the kind of climate that cotton is in, and that none of that stuff is really explained. And I thought it was just sort of interesting where starting from the very basics and assuming kids know nothing about a topic <laughs> and having to provide all the details because maybe kids just aren't aware of those things. And I thought it was a, an interesting point that he's definitely making. Now, Right now, though, we're also in the skills kind of era of teaching and that people believe, no, look, what we really need are critical thinkers. We need strong readers. We need strong writers. We need kids to be able to kind of recognize patterns and then apply them over there. We need kids to be able to creatively communicate their conclusions. And those are all things that don't seem to be promoted by Mr. Hirsch. you have any thoughts about that? Well, like I said, it doesn't have to be all one of all the other. But yeah, he does not mention that. I have not read his book, so I couldn't go into too much depth on what he believes or doesn't believe. But you could learn about how skills are solved by other people, and perhaps that's part of it. But yeah, skills are important. Being able to do things is important. However, I do want to say, what, go back to one more thing you said about forgetting is when your children are in middle school and you have to help them with math, you will realize you did not forget math entirely. Even though you've done very little factoring for the last 20 years of your life, I presume, unless you're factoring on the side. I am not know if you are. It's a real hobby. Okay. Well, when you go back to do it, you're like, oh, this does come back. I do remember this. And even though you've forgotten it explicitly, you couldn't say that you know it, the implicit skill to do it is still there. And perhaps that's because of the good teaching. Perhaps it's the lecturing. Perhaps it's all of the above. But I think we overstate how much we forget because it does come back when you go to do it. It's a good point. I remember when I had to take my general teacher test. You had to, it was a very basic literacy knowledge test just to show that like you knew how to read and do basic math and you weren't allowed a calculator. And I remember being so excited when I was given a long division problem and I knew how to set that baby up. It took me like four lines on the scrap paper to do the problem. And you're right. There are, there are definitely things that you know that maybe you don't think you know. And as somebody who has two children who are in the quote unquote new math era, my wife and I definitely have some reservations about what's going on. And it's not that I don't think what my kids are doing is challenging or difficult. But what I notice is my kids are constantly told, well, here's one way you can solve this problem. Here's another way you can solve this problem. Here's another way you can solve this problem. Then they come home. My wife and I try to you know, show them how to solve a problem. And they're like, well, that's not what we did in school. And I'm like, but do you see how we get the same, the answer? No, dad, like, I don't think my teacher would allow us. It's not one of the other ways. And so my kids almost get more confused with the different ways and they just don't pick one that works, if you know what I'm saying. There's confusion there when I don't know if we had to make it as hard as we are making it. Yeah, I, there's something too, like there's a right and wrong way to do something. Here's my comparison. So when you throw discus, because I coached track and field for years and 
there's a one way to throw discus. There's a right way to throw discus and your feet moving this way and your hips moving that way. And there's a right way to throw discus. And I talked to our baseball coach one time and I said, how do you teach people how to throw? He's like, I don't teach people how to throw. I said, what do you mean? He's like, God gives them that ability. So he's not teaching them how to pitch. He's just relying on their internal abilities and there's different ways to pitch. And remember the, in Moneyball, they picked up this guy that pitched really, really weird, but he was really good. And it's hard for me to figure out because I want there to be one right way to do things. This is the, the single way to do this, but it seems like there's many ways. And I don't know what's better as a student. I think I'd like it if people are like, well, do whatever way it works. But as a teacher and a coach, I feel like you have to have the right way. Is that wrong? Does that make any sense? No, it does. I was instantly thinking about how 10, 20 years ago, watching basketball, you saw all sorts of weird shots or release points for people, right? And now with kind of the rise of Steph Curry and Arc, more and more people just seem to be shooting the same way now, if you know what I'm saying, as they teach the fundamentals of, of shooting. And I just kind of find that interesting. And maybe there is one way or why are we so obsessed with talking about different ways to do it? But at the same time, we're also a society that's always saying, think outside the box. You need to find a new solution that's different than how everybody's thinking, right? We celebrate the money balls because finally somebody's looking at something differently than just how everybody was thinking about it. So I don't know if all of a sudden we just start promoting the same sets of facts and data sets. Are we possibly not encouraging the next founders of the next great startup that looked at the world differently. Yeah, that's true. I guess that is part of American um, inventiveness. And because America files more patents than other countries by a large margin, we have very creative thinkers that have unique solutions to things for the most part. And we don't all expect people to do things one way. The Japanese spend years and years, as you know, teaching kids how to make the 20,000 different letters in their alphabet. Well, they're not really letters, but the idea is just memorization, reproduction, and focusing on that and pounding the round peg in the square hole. I mean, that's what they are focused on, but it's not led them to nearly as much innovation as we have. Perhaps that is a strength of our nation. Much to the chagrin of the last 30 years of math teachers that said, you must do it this way until our children are benefiting. Maybe our kids will blossom because of this. There's a whole group of people out there that want to have you and I replaced by Finnish teachers. Everybody's <laughs> obsessed with Finland and the Finland results, right? And I'm sure Finland is knocking it out of the park. But I always just go back to the innovation that does happen in America. We talked last week about the number of startup companies, the number of patents that come here. And there's something about the American educational system for all of its flaws that still seems to try and provoke some individual creativity, some individualism. And we as a nation still celebrate the person with the really original idea. We celebrate them through the stock market, right? We celebrate them through to just applause at the latest piece of artwork that they make. And there's another book that I read last spring, and I would argue it's the greatest, most interesting educational book I've ever read. The book was called In Search of Deeper Learning. It was this Harvard researcher that was like, I want to go out and find the schools that are just knocking it out of the park in terms of promoting deeper learning. Now, he says and defines deeper learning as schools or classrooms or teachers that are basically doing this with students. They're giving students mastery over a subject, meaning they're giving them opportunities to have deep knowledge over something. 
They're also giving them identity. The students are connecting themselves with the material. They see themselves as a part of it or how they relate to this material as an individual. And then they're offering those students creativity, opportunities to enact and communicate their knowledge about this topic in their own voice. That, in their opinion, is what deeper learning is. It's not hard. It's easy to say you're doing deeper learning, but it's not. And it's kind of the thing of this is how we want our students to be taught so that they are the next patent creator, the next startup maker, right? We want students to take variables and then find ways that they connect and then put them together. I mean, I think about the musical Hamilton, right? Here's somebody who takes rap, who takes colonial America and the founding of it, and then takes a biography of Alexander Hamilton, puts it all together and comes up with one of the greatest pieces of art that I've seen in 10 years in my life, if not longer, that is true genius, right? That's true deeper learning and communicating something. And don't we wanna be proud of that and find ways to promote more of that than if we just made students remember every one of our founding fathers, all of their birthdays and all of their accomplishments. Well, two things there. One, I don't think I'd make it as a teacher in Finland because they only take like the top 5% of students and let them be teachers. And I certainly was not that. They do compensate them highly though. But two, I think you've hit upon the biggest rejection of Hirsch is. Hirsch says that in the 40s is when our educational attainment starts to fall and our scores on these tests start to fall because we walk away from the lecturing. Well, what happens to GDP growth from you know, 1920s through the 40s, it's okay. But all our big ideas that have really revolutionized the world have come in the 90s and 2000s. The internet, the growth of processors, machine learning, computers, all this thing happened with people that were born, that went to school in the 70s and 80s. After this, it all changed. And after we had abandoned memorizing things forever. And that's where these people came from. And so ultimately our GDP growth, our productivity, our innovation came from these people that weren't lectured at. That's a good point. And at the same time, I'll push back on you. You were just talking about GDP growth, right? But we also know the last 30, 40 years is where we have seen the widest gap in income inequality, right? And therefore it's like those who are able to do deeper learning or come up with the ideas, their income levels have risen like never before. But Hirsch's whole point is we have no common language. And does that possibly explain why you have a major kind of winners and losers society now? His point, we have to make sure that we are teaching the same things to everybody so they have a language that's the same, so they can be citizens of our nation the same. And I think that's interesting. We talked about the idea about last week of immigration and how do you make sure that there's a glue, a connective tissue that connects everybody Hirsch's argument is good, but your argument is also really good. So where do we stand? How does this get solved? Maybe Hirsch's argument leads us to a higher floor, but also a lower ceiling. And then the counter argument leads to a limitless ceiling, but a much lower floor. The other point I, I just sort of was thinking about is, okay, let's, let's say we took Hirsch's idea. We're going to teach all these facts. And Politico, a couple of weeks ago, just had a story about Donald Trump and the, the headline was Restore Patriotic Education. President Trump said, children must be taught that America is an exceptional, free, and just nation worth defending, preserving, and protecting. The only path to unity is to rebuild a shared national identity focused on common American values and virtues of which we have plenty. 
This includes restoring patriotic education in our nation's schools, where they are trying to change everything that we have learned. What do you think about that? Because I agree with a lot of these statements, the idea that we're an exceptional, free, and just nation. We're worth defending, preserving, and protecting. But how do you put that into curriculum, if you know what I'm saying? Well, he also wanted to say that there's no such thing as white privilege and that everybody starts on equal footing and all sorts of other things that don't make a whole lot of sense. But yeah, you could do that. I think it starts with the core ideas. You could come up with core ideas that fit that parameters. And that is that immigrants rise up and contribute greatly to our society. I don't think that's what one of the Donald Trump would argue for, but I think it's one that we could find great support and lots of evidence and it'd be an interesting theme to examine. And it would be different from his rejection of immigration. But it also, I'm not sure we really need a core unifying educational idea. I think the idea of America itself is the idea. As we talked about last week, I think it was, like immigrants that come here that want to stay, want to stay because they want to be part of America. Whatever America is to them, does it have to mean the exact same thing? We have a large nation with many different groups of people from many places with many different cultures. I mean, before radio and TV, people didn't have much in common at all throughout our nation. Did really a rancher in Montana have anything to do with or in common with a person living in New York City before there was radio and TV? No. When they had common radio shows, that brought things together. And these people had common experiences to talk about. But we don't really have to have a theme other than we all like our nation, right? Yeah. And the idea of patriotic education, just that word patriotism, I think, has a different meaning to a lot of people about what it means to be patriotic. Therefore, I don't even know if we could agree on patriotic education. I just wonder, though, if Hirsch wants to get so nitty gritty into the facts that we're going to now start taking sides, which makes all of this much more controversial. I think Hirsch would want to just paint the facts and you can take away from it with what you want. But at least if you understand the facts and know the situation, you can use that to fuel whatever fire you want to burn. And that's a good point about maybe Hirsch's real point is, look, I just want you to know that there's an issue called gun control out there that's very controversial. Here are the top five arguments on one side. Here are the top five arguments on the other side. And you know what? I can't argue with that. If that's what his goal is, is to make a citizen just aware that all issues have multiple sides and it's our responsibility to understand all the sides of it. And you can pick one if you want. I think people are going to pick the ones that their parents have. In the long run, hopefully they're looking at it and evaluating why they stand where they stand. I guess and you're right. The, the current model we use is, hey, guys, there's an issue out there called gun control. Go out and learn what you can and see if you can find the sides. And then a good teacher, though, like Mr. McLaughlin, would get up and ask kids, what did you find in your research? And by the way, did you notice this? Did you find this? Did you see this? What kind of sources are you using, right? The process is such a bigger part of how we educate today instead of the lecture. But I do think you're right in that maybe we've gone too far in the other direction. I've seen nothing more frustrated than a group of kids that are told to figure out the answer to a problem than without having a direct answer given by the professor or the teacher, that they just have to keep meandering and wandering. And they just said, just tell me the answer. What does addiction mean? Or whatever it is. And again, I just think this and and the, the, the stuff we discussed at the beginning of the podcast, it just goes to show how much education continues to sit in the middle of American society and that everybody has an opinion about it. And it's something that I think people have been arguing about since the beginning of time and will continue to probably argue about it 
300 years from now is what is the purpose of school? What are we supposed to do there? And what is the best thing we can get in terms of our outcomes? And I think you bring up a really good point when you just said, are we collecting enough data about the outcomes? And, and are we doing enough adjustment to what we're doing when we get those outcomes? And can we even agree on the kind of data that we want to collect? Well, and how do we evaluate it? Do we evaluate it by graduation rates, by GDP growth, by long run happiness, by lifespan, by income inequality? These are all things that are measured 10, 20, 30 years later, if we're looking, much like this pandemic thing. We're, we're going to speculate a lot on what's happening, but we're not really going to know till 10, 20, 30 years from now. We look back and see what happened to different groups of kids at different ages as they went through this, including ourselves? I have often wondered why a local school district doesn't keep longitudinal data about the success rate of their graduates three, five, 10, 20, 25 years later. I, I think it might be hard to collect some of that data, but it would be interesting if you could just say stuff like, hey, are you working in a career that, that you find meaningful or that you enjoy? Are you able to live the life that, that you are happy living right now. I don't know exactly how you word these questions, but just some sort of a way to find out, like, were you a part of um, somebody's life to help them get on the track that they want to be on? I remember there was an administrator that was working on this, and I thought it was super interesting, especially for a long time and continuing to a degree. Our school is focused on career pathways and choosing a career that you're going to go into. I've always wondered, do the kids go in those careers? Was it all a waste of time? Did they really find it engaging? And I think the answer is school districts have limited manpower. They don't have, they have scarce resources. A lot of the money goes to staffing, to teachers like you and I. And then they don't have a lot of manpower or woman power or person power that's just hanging around looking for something to do. Mostly they all have full plates of things to do, especially now, and they don't have the time, the energy, or the ability to find these people where they went. But I think it's possible. I wish there'd be a, somebody that's doing a PhD thesis that wanted to follow up on Lake Orion grads using LinkedIn or whatever else, whatever all the resources they there are to find out what happened to these kids. Is that the pathway they wanted to go into? Were they always a health science person? Did it work out? And what were the factors that led it to work out? I mean, there's just a whole world of things to find out that we're not even looking into. The students at my level start, start the career education process by taking some interest surveys. What are you interested in? And I'm always stunned when the kids come back, Mr. Avail, the computer said that I could be a pro athlete. And <laughs> you know, I like sports and I like to make a lot of money. And I'm like, okay, um, well, maybe we should also have the backup plan as well. And I always just think, why are we suggesting to kids that you could be a pro athlete? Now, did you ever take a career survey thing, uh, like a little, a little computer program to tell you what you would be? I did. Meter reader um, was one of them. The, the guy that like gets the parking change out of the parking meters. Ooh. Um, now, now, my father was a professor at the University of Michigan, and I grew up with many academic difficulties uh, stemming from learning disabilities, among other things. And he was very, very concerned about what would ever happen to me. So I took a computer program that was on a floppy disk, like a real floppy disk, five and a quarter inch floppy disk. And I remember vividly when I picked out, uh, do you want to work outside? And I said, yes. That really limited my options. And I was supposed to be a uh, national park ranger or a roofer. 
And one of those sounds a lot better than the other, but I didn't end up being either of them. I once told my dad I wanted to be a roofer and he looked at me and he said, you're going to need to have a very large insurance premium that you're going to pay. So just be ready. to." <laughs> and you've never done roofing. I've done roofing. It's absolutely miserable. You know, I was up on my roof this weekend painting and it was a very steep pitch. My ankles really hurt. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't be the only thing it hurt if you actually did roofing. Oh, I can imagine. It, it looks like very difficult you know, labor intensive work. That's for sure. I have a lot of respect for anybody that can bravely get up on a roof on a regular basis. Cause it, I'm not a heights guy. So it definitely scares me. All right, man. We've sorted yeah. it all out. We've solved all the problems. I, I think we did, Don. I think uh, American education is better for this conversation. As always a pleasure to talk with you this week. I look forward to talking with you next week. Absolutely. Good times. Have a great week. Take care.